Hello, and welcome to Monumental, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, leaders, visionaries, and big thinkers making monumental change. Here's your host, Evan Holliday. Welcome to Monumental. I'm your host, Evan Holliday, and today on the show, we have on Paul Moore. Paul, great to have you on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Evan. Thanks. Yes. So Paul is a successful entrepreneur and uh, was twice nominated for the ENY Entrepreneur of the Year uh, before he got started in real estate in 2000. He's now managing partner at Wellings Capital, where they offer commercial real estate investment opportunities centered on providing stable, yield-producing investments to their clients. He's the author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing, and he is the also co-host of a wealth building podcast called How to Lose Money. I love that title, by the way, and is a regular author for Bigger Pockets. So let's just jump right in and, and go into kind of your story before real estate and how you got into real estate. Yeah. So um, I went, uh, I got an engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And uh, I didn't really know myself, Evan, you know, I mean, I wish young people, I, I hope they have better counsel today than I had. I, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do growing up. And I was, it was almost as bad as throwing darts at a dartboard, like whatever anybody would say to me, or one of my parents' friends would make an offhanded comment oh yeah, I want to be in geology. That sounds fun. Rocks, you know? And I had no real sense of what I wanted to do until I was in my MBA uh, years later. And I realized, hey, I should have been doing marketing all along. (laughs) But uh, anyway, I went to Ford Motor Company for five years, had a great time there. And then I started my own company with a partner and we sold it to a publicly traded firm five years later. And I found myself before my 34th birthday having a couple million dollars in the bank and no clue how to invest that money or how to invest at all and or nor how to invest my time either. I thought I'm going to be the best dad, the best husband, yeah. best friend anybody ever had, great investor. And I failed at all those. You know, I actually, you know, I became kind of the worst version of myself. I was this type A driven high energy entrepreneur and I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia from Metro Detroit and got really quickly bored. And I thought I was investing. You know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. So I was a speculator and I jumped into real estate investing a few years later, and I've been doing it ever since for almost 20 years. It's been a great time. I've done probably a dozen different things in the real estate investing world, but everyone, I think I get closer to what I was supposed to be doing all along, <laughs> which is uh, we're, right now we're managing a couple recession-resistant funds with mobile home parks, self-storage, and a apartments in the funds and we're managing those partnering with best in class operators and uh, we're enjoying it having the time of our life that's awesome that's that's a great story and it's awesome that you you know you had that early success but yet you still felt like you didn't have the right direction so how how did you make that shift how did that happen where you you found kind of the direction and purpose that you wanted to to go down Yeah, you know, honestly, it was through a lot of trial and error. And that's why, again, part of the impetus for our podcast, it's a wealth building podcast we have, but 
it's called how to lose money because there are a whole lot of ways to lose money. And I think the problem as investors is we confuse entrepreneurship with investing. You know, entrepreneurs have to swing from the fence for the fences when they start up a new company quite often. But as investors, when we put our investor hat on, we shouldn't probably be swinging for the fence as much. I mean, if you keep playing double or nothing with all of your capital, you're going to land on nothing at some point, then what will you have left to double? And that's the problem with speculation. You know, I mean, finish this sentence, low risk leads to low return, high risk leads to high return. Yeah, you would think, but it's not true. It's high risk leads to the potential of high return, the potential of high loss as well. And it took me a long, long time to learn that lesson. Uh, We did a ground up development of some apartments that went phenomenally. We made millions of dollars, but then we did a ground up development of a Hyatt hotel and it was a disaster. And, um, you know, I mean, so I, I decided, you know, when I was about 50 years old, I didn't want to be on the wrong side of a development gone bad. And so we decided to pull back and get into more, you know, value add investing with best in class operators who really knew what they were doing, not learning it from the ground up as we went along. Right, right. So, yeah, it was a process over 15 years, I'd say. Wow. That's amazing that you, you know, you, you, took that time and that trial and error and, and learning as you went. And now with Wellings, you, you know, the, the niche that you're going after of recession proof investing and in partnering with key operators that know what they're doing and have a proven track record. Right. Yep. So, so going into today with Wellings, how, how are you finding, how are you finding the best in class operators? Yeah. So we, um, we were really heavily focused on multifamily only. And I love multifamily. Like I said, I called it the perfect investment. And I go through in my book and chapter, especially chapter four, five, and eight, I go through the argument for why it is the perfect balance of risk and return and all that stuff. The problem is right now, as we all know, multifamily is somewhat overheated. And so we finally, after years, literally years of banging our head against the wall and, you know, being outbid by people who had a lot more risk tolerance than we did in our fifties, we decided let's expand our horizons. And we were shocked happily that self-storage and mobile home parks have a lot, I mean, a whole lot of mom and pop operators that leave a lot of meat on the bone. And there's lots of value add opportunities that, I haven't seen in multifamily for a while. You know, 93% of multifamily over 50 units is owned by corporations and they've largely wrung out the value, but about 70% or more of self-storage and almost 90% of mobile home parks are owned by mom and pops. And they haven't typically wrung out the value. They typically don't know how to market. They typically don't have the resources or the desire to do all the modern upgrades they could do to get a lot more value and a huge return for their investors. So when we came to this realization a couple of years ago, we also knew that we hadn't done it ourselves. You know, we didn't have a team who had lived and survived or even thrived through the recession. So we went out and tried to start finding those. And we have a rigorous process about a 24 point questionnaire. We want to get a check mark on most of those. And so we 
talk to operators who've been at it, you know, for a long time. They have a cohesive team. They have in-house accounting, in-house, you know, uh, in-house, uh, a lot of different, you know, property management, et cetera, all dialed in. They've got a conservative mindset. Uh, they've got a great track record. They got happy investors. We've talked to their employees, hopefully even talked to ex-employees just to see how they treat people. You know, we've gone out to their sites. So we do a lot of due diligence on an operator. And then when we, you know, agree to work with that operator, then we really dive in heavily with them. So how did, how did your team at Wellings, how did that come about that formation? The team at Wellings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was working with another guy who's a dear friend for the last decade. And he actually, um, he, he had a medical practice. And the problem was he, he kept, you know, hoping he could sell the practice. You know, if we can only get a few more apartment buildings, then we can, I can sell my practice. Or if I can only get, and it just never came about. Um, and so we, we through, you know, I mean, I, I met him for dinner uh, two nights ago. We're still good friends, but we had to decide, you know, hey, this isn't really working because I'm giving my 60 or whatever hours a week to this and you're only able to work on it on weekends and evenings. And so we decided to part company and I actually hired uh, the, uh, I hired a college senior five, four and a half years ago um, and, uh, he's been with us, you know, almost, he's been with us over four years now, full time. And he was a perfect partner for this. So I actually brought him in as a junior partner recently. Wow. Um, so as far as, as going back, I, I want to go back to, you know, the name of your podcast. And I know we talked about it a little bit before we hopped on here. Um, why, why calling it how to lose money and, and what's the story behind that? Yeah. You know, <clears throat> for years I would go to these, um, uh, I, my family's really important to me. I would go to these father daughter retreats at this beautiful resort in Georgia with one of my daughters, my oldest daughter, and we would see these people on stage and there were these, the perfect husband and father type guys. And I'm not saying that sarcastically, they were great, you know, great men. And they would tell all these wonderful stories about their family's adventures and how they went to Hawaii or Europe or mountain climbing or parachuting. And I would see, and they would talk about their wonderful families. And I would see the men around the table. We had like 10 people per table. It was father and a, and a daughter. And I could see the people just kind of shrinking down in their seats. And I would, we would do a group conversation. They would say, uh, I'm a failure. I'll never be like that. I'll never be that good because all the people would talk about it, all their successes. And I even heard my daughter say, I'm kind of jealous of that family. I wish I was in that family because they seem like they're always doing something adventurous. Well, I got to know some of these fathers and families and I realized they were just like us. They had problems. They fought at home. They left socks on the floor uh, and they were just like, just like us. And that actually encouraged me greatly and it gave me hope. And I saw the same thing in business. You know, I'd hear people trumpeting all their successes and that's great. But you know what, if they, when I found out they had great failures and pain and doubts along the way, I actually felt encouraged. I thought, well, there's hope for me too. And so I thought if I ever start a podcast, I am going to talk about problems, pain, failures, loss, and self-doubt and how those people can still succeed to give everybody hope. 
And so that's what we're about at how to lose money. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's catchy. I mean, that's great way to to lure people in. It's like, well, what does he mean lose money out? Why would I want to lose money? That that's the opposite right. of what I want to do. Exactly. And you're exactly right. I mean, that, that reminds me of, you know, the whole social media effect of everybody posting the perfect version of themselves and not sharing the full picture. And and I think there has been a movement towards people actually sharing real stories and real failures just like you all are doing with the podcast. So I commend you for that um, because it, it's powerful to, to show people it's okay to fail. You know, that's how you learn. That's how you grow. That's, that's how you make better decisions in the future. Right. It's so true. You know, uh, people say, and there's lots of analogies I could give, but people say you learn so much more from your failures than you do from your success. And it's, I think in a lot of ways easier to not replicate someone's failure than it is to replicate someone's success. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Um, and, and we talked briefly about um, your personal story of, of losing money and, and having to, to fight through that. What, what was that like for you? Yeah. So when we sold our company to a publicly traded firm in 97, I had a couple million dollars in the bank and um, we um, found ourselves exactly a decade later uh, when one of my business partners came to me and said, I can't do this anymore. We were going into the recession. Of course, remember, Evan, we couldn't see what was coming at the time. We thought maybe the recession was almost over in 2007. There wasn't even a recession yet, technically. But we knew there was a big slowdown in real estate. And um, so we were hoping it was almost over, but it was late 2007. And my partner said, I can't do this anymore. So we signed the deed of all these properties we had bought on speculation over to me, which meant I got the debt as well. And so I found myself $2.5 million in debt going into late 2007, again, not knowing how bad things were about to get. And um, so I was actually meditating one morning, meditating one morning, we'll talk about morning practices later, I guess. But <clears throat> I was thinking, I actually had this crazy thought, WWGMD, which doesn't mean what would grandma do? It means what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller is one of my historical heroes. And he actually was a hellion who turned into a pastor and actually started orphanages in Bristol, England. And he basically operated these through for about a hundred years after his, after he was gone part of it, of course, they, they, they helped, they served like 10,000 total orphans and they did it without ever having a fundraiser, ever doing marketing without everybody ever telling without ever telling anyone their needs. And I thought, what would he do? Well, the first thing, you know, he would never have been in debt in the first place. So I was already in trouble. But I thought if he would have found himself in debt, he would have done something completely countercultural, completely radical and look for a great outcome. And so what I decided was I had a couple of friends right around that time said, hey, can we meet? We want to talk to you about your finances. And uh, they said, you know, aren't you going to have to declare bankruptcy? And I said, no. I'm going to give my way out of debt. That went over really well, just about like the silence you just heard. Yeah. I told my family the same thing. I said, starting January 1st, 2008, we're going to find you know some charities, some nonprofits, church, et cetera, that we really care about. And we're going to give a set amount every single week, and we're going to see what happens. 
Well, four weeks into this, Evan, I was talking to a real estate developer. It was actually quite random at a Subway restaurant. And uh, I was talking to him about the quandary I was in and this five acre parcel I had, I wanted to subdivide into waterfront lots. And he said, oh, you ought to try this. And it, that little light bulb thought he planted turned into a completely ridiculous way of circumventing this legal thing that would keep me from subdividing these lots. Now, of course, I wasn't going to do this under the table. So I went and met with the county planning and zoning people two days later. And I said, hey, I found in your law that you say this, but what about that? And I was, I turned it. And I said, but couldn't you look at the wording this way? And the lady was shocked. She said, I've been working here for decades. No one has ever seen that loophole in the law, but you're completely right. And nobody could stop you from doing that. And so no, there was a lot of sweat and uh, a, a pain and a few sleepless hours in the next 13 months. But 13 months, months later, Evan, I was completely debt-free. Wow. So... Yeah, I mean, I love that the fact that, you know, you went through a very, you know, probably very trying time for yourself where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm, you're in a quandary, like you said, you know, you're in a, a tough spot where you don't really always know what the next step should be. Mm -hmm. um, but you just decided to come at it from a place of giving and a place yeah. of like actually looking to help other people and looking to serve other people. And then uh, an opportunity presented itself that, you know, you had not planned on at all. That's for sure. That's amazing. So, so um, that's, I just love the fact that, it, you know, that's something that I deal with on development too, is like always looking at unique opportunities to, um, to be able to look at things at a whole new way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another thing too. I mean, the fact that he gave you a whole new perspective and mm -hmm. trying something that's creative that's out of the box um, right. I think that's something that everybody should keep in mind as they're trying to problem solve yeah I'll tell you what when we, if we get together in Nashville next week I'll tell you the whole story because it's actually quite detailed and it's kind of geeky developer <laughs> stuff I think you'd love it yes I would um, well so so going into all that debt I mean what what was that like having that um, I don't know that burden on you and then, and then being able to actually come out of there, you know, with both feet on, on the ground and, and moving forward. It was amazing. I mean, at the time, I think it's actually more epic now looking back at it, you know, over a decade later um, than at the time. Of course, at the time, you know, there was meetings with bankers and meetings with mortgage people and pulling my hair out, you know, with a surveyor and all that. So at the time, it seemed like a lot of grunt work, but now it seems like a great uh, story. I, I don't think I realized, you know, I, I don't think at the time I really took into account how much risk I was taking going from 2004 when things were booming in the real estate market to two, late 2007 when they were really screeching almost to a halt, I don't really think I took into account how bad, you know, of some of the decisions we were making and the debt we were going into, how bad it could have been. And, um, you know, Fortune, I think it was Fortune or Entrepreneur Magazine had a big cover story about 2007 saying the real estate bubble is about to burst. And you know what? I had to ignore the facts from that. And you know how you do that. You've got to track your running on 
and you start looking for all the evidence that backs yeah. up your story. I know they call this something in psychology. And then you look for, and you ignore all the evidence or you find a way to justify, well, this time it's different. Well, you know what, folks, if you're thinking we're going to have a recession again in 2019, 20 or 21, and you think, but I'm an exception, this time it's different. You know what, you're probably wrong. It's probably not different than, you know, thousands of years of earth history have shown us from the tulip bubble, the tulip bulb craze of the 1600s in Holland to, you know, Bitcoin here in three years ago, you know, it's speculation is still speculation. And um, real estate investing has opportunities to not speculate and to really invest. And that's one of the reasons I love it. So how, what would, what advice would you have for somebody that, um, if they had the, the same situation you had where maybe they had some failures or they're going through, um, excuse me, a tough situation where, you know, they have debt or they have a burden on them, you know, whether it be financial or, or even mental, um, or something they feel is holding them back. How, how would you, what advice would you have given your experience of, of overcoming that? and looking towards creating a better future? You know, I would just really say, I mean, look, I really believe that the law of sowing and reaping or some people in the East uh, might call it karma. Uh, I really believe that's a universal law and it's really true. And I would look for opportunities to, to basically act in the opposite spirit to the situation you're in or to basically, you know, to give, of your time, of your money, of your talent, when you might feel like you're scrambling and scraping just to get by, um, <clears throat> give something away and you'll be surprised. Um, I don't think there's some vending machine in the sky and this always works automatically every time, but I really do believe the law is, you know, uh, the principle is true. And so that's the one thing I would leave with people. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that's, you're exactly right. That's powerful um, to always come from a place of how can you better serve other people yeah. and inevitably it will likely help you as well. Yeah, it's really true. Um, so going to what you said about recession proof investing and, and also you brought up a, a great point of like, you know, going into we're at what seems like the top of the market um, and nobody knows when it's going to turn or what, what the turn's going to look like. How are you best protecting and how can others best protect themselves um, from any sort of change in the market? Yeah, so Warren Buffett talks about investing with a margin of safety or a buffer. And basically that is, you know, buying not, I mean, I mean Howard Marks also, he's a, a Warren Buffett, a friend of Buffett's. He's got a book called mastering the market cycle, getting the odds in your favor. And um, I think that if right now you're barely, barely eking out a profit, you know, on your pro formas when you're thinking about making an investment. And I mean, we're, if we are at the top of the market and you have to count on appreciation to make your deal work, maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe you should try to think like Buffett and try to either be selling when everyone else is buying. Of course, he says be greedy whenever others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. But 
um, you should also be working in a, a large margin of safety. The closer we get to the top of the market, the larger the margin of safety, which is flying straight in the face of what a lot of people are doing in times of unbridled optimism. And um, for me, the margin of safety is buying right. And that means buying uh, mom and pop owned and operated, um, whether it's apartments, self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, buying mom and pop operated assets with a whole lot of potential. And that is to me, one of the great margins of safety. A second piece of that would be buying assets that are generally recession resistant. And what I mean by that is this, if you look at the statistics of mobile home parks in the last recession, there was absolutely no dip at all. Now apartments and self storage had a dip, but their dip was far, far less severe than other asset classes. In fact, at the height of the recession, Freddie and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's uh, apartment versus homes. Homes were um, uh, delinquent up to 4.4%. I think private banks had up to 10% delinquency and foreclosure rate. Apartments had like 0.4%. So they were 90% lower than the best measure of houses and uh, like 96% lower, I think, than a lot of the private banks. Okay, that's apartments. Self-storage and mobile home parks, from what I understand, did even better. And you can think about why. When people downsize their home, they might go to an apartment. When they downsize from an apartment, they might go to a mobile home. When they downsize from a mobile home, where are they going to go? Well, under a bridge. I mean, it is the cheapest form of housing out there. And um, it's probably the bottom rung on the ladder. And um, so typically, they actually kind of have a buffer, if you will, during a recession. Self-storage is similar. When people downsize, they need a place to store their stuff. And for a very small percentage of their income, they can store their stuff in self-storage. In good times, they need a place to store their stuff because they're buying more. And they, you know, so self-storage has done really well in both economies. The problem with self-storage is you can get certain areas like Nashville, in fact, that are overbuilt. And so that can cause a problem. And that problem is not there for mobile home parks because they're actually dwindling in number every year. So it's a really powerful asset class. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I guess one thing, one question I have is, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at other operators, pro formas, I've, I've seen what they're offering. Um, and I've seen a lot of like healthy optimism. And like you're saying, it's like trying to, you know, eke out every last inch of the pro forma and really being optimistic and bullish on appreciation and in every year of the future um, and not taking into account any sort of, um, you know, margin, as you say, as Warren Buffett says, like not having any margin for error. And um, so I just, I just want to know your perspective on um, what you're looking at as far as like, how long are you trying to hold on to your properties? And, and what are you looking at as far as like, um, expected growth of, you know, like the exit cap or different things like that? Like, how are you looking at that perspective of it? Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, are, you know, historically the cap rate, oh, backing up, the value formula for commercial real estate is really powerful. It's different from residential. It's basically the 
uh, income divided by the return, or more specifically, value equals net operating income divided by cap rate. And so um, a 10% cap rate, which was kind of normal historically, meant that people expected a 10% annual return on investment, not including the debt service. But now it's dropped to about half that, to like 5% in a lot of markets. And so if an operator comes to me and says, hey, we're buying at a 5.5% cap and we're assuming we're going to sell at a 4.5%, I'm going to have really serious problems with that. I'd rather see an operator, even if they had good reason to believe they could shrink the cap rate, and it is possible, by the way, um, I would still rather see them underwrite at a more conservative, you know, expanded cap rate, let's say 7%. Now, Evan, there are advantages to people who are positioned to hold and want to hold long term. Think about this. In a, let's say a recession, uh, sometimes, and maybe not this time, but sometimes the interest rate might go up, the cap rate correspondingly will go up, but what also could happen, especially if there's inflation, is there could be uh, an increase in rents and therefore an increase in net operating income. Okay, so while the cap rate is expanding, which means the price of the assets going down, your income the above the, you know, right. the numerator of that equation might be going up as well. Well, here's the advantage of a long-term holder. If you're forced to sell for some reason because of your debt or your equity partners in three years, you might hit the wrong part of that cycle. But if you're a longer-term holder, let's say you've got 12-year debt like we have on our apartments, um, you know, what could happen is the cycle could go back in the other direction. Inflation could cool off. Um, the cap rate could shrink again. The interest rate could shrink again. But typically, rents don't shrink. So if your rent through inflation went up from $1,000 to $1,200 a unit, typically that rent's going to still be in place. And therefore, your net operating income will be intact. And your value of your asset as the cap rate shrinks again, let's say in year 7, 8, 9, 10, can be very significantly higher. And so I think there's a long-term advantage. And so we want to invest with operators who are positioned and able to hold longer term. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it also goes back to another Warren Buffett principle of investing is that, you know, you, he always says, he's like, I won't invest in something that I don't want to hold for the long term. Right. And that's exactly how we approach our investments is, you know, it's looking at say, Hey, are we willing to um, be able to hold this for the long term for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, looking at that longer term hold and, and making sure the numbers still make sense because yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, that's part of what happened when 08 with a lot of groups that, you know, had a cash flowing multifamily property and, and had to have it foreclosed on or couldn't refinance it because the loan right. came due at the wrong time. Right. Yep. It's very true. So we definitely, we, we love, you know, Buffett, what his ideal holding time is forever. And he also <laughs> talks about, you know, investing in stuff and then not even looking at the stock price for like five or 10 years because he can see the value in the underlying asset. And you know, Buffett has bought a lot of mom and pops. You know, he bought a mom and pop jewelry store and a mom and pop furniture market and a mom and pop other things that he is under his tutelage have just exploded, you know? So uh, we, I mean, he likes that margin of safety as well. 
Right. Yeah. Including Clayton homes and manufactured housing. Yeah. Um, so going into what you said previously, uh, I love that you said, you know, give of your time, you know, give of your money and give of your spirit. Uh, so what, what are you doing and what are you, you and your family and your company, I guess, doing, um, to, to give of all of those? Yeah. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I saw a movie called Nefarious. And this documentary on human trafficking shocked me, opened my eyes to the horrors of human trafficking. Though the documentary didn't say this, um, I'll say it. If you took the record profits, and I don't mean the average profits, Evan, the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, added those together, record profits, doubled it, that would be the approximate total revenue generated by human trafficking every year. It is astounding. It's wow. huge. And, you know, I'd like to believe if I was alive in the 1800s, I would have been an abolitionist fighting, you know, against slavery and fighting for freedom. Or if I'd have been an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. It's been ripped away from 20 to 40 million people, uh, and it is slavery, and it's happening right under our noses. So I do, I'm doing everything I can to tell people about this, and we're, our goal is to fund um, fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims in a large way. So uh, while you know we're still in the early years of this right now, we've got some big goals. I'm working with a group called Freedom Place Project. Uh, you can find it at freedomplaceproject.com. We're not taking any donations. We don't need donations. What we're going to do is we're planning to build a billion-dollar office tower in Dallas, and we're planning to use, uh, of course, we'll pay the investors, we'll pay the lenders, we'll pay the construction folks and architects, but we're planning to use 100% of the developer's profits to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. And then if that works, we plan to take the Freedom Place Project concept and roll it out into other major cities across the nation. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. I, I, I was not expecting that. That's, that blows me away. Um, yeah, billion dollars. That's pretty amazing. So, so why, why this structure and, and why an office building in Dallas? Yeah, it turns out that, I mean, this was not my idea. I'm just on the board of this, but um, the guy who came up with it is a, comes from, uh, he's a third generation real estate developer and investor in Dallas. And so it was a natural fit for him. He's got lots of great contacts there. A few names that people would recognize uh, are interested in partnering with us. And so uh, we're really excited to get this off the ground. We're looking at land and uh, possible building, um, you know, architecture right now. That's great. And, and I love that you're, you're marrying two of your passions together of real estate and, and helping others and, and helping with a, a civil rights issue on, a, on an international scale. Yeah, right. Thank you. It's exciting. <laughs> if, if, if people want to know more about that, they can find the nefarious movie online. They can rent it. They can also go to Exodus Cry dot com to learn more about what exodus cry is doing and there's other groups ijm and others as well are doing a lot in this arena 
That's amazing. Um, and I, and I encourage everybody listening as well to, to take him up on that and then also find your own way of marrying your passion, excuse me, your passion, um, to something that you want to serve and help others. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, you know, when I sold my company, I was, like I said, I wasn't even 34 yet. And I had a couple million dollars in my bank account and people, you know, kind of, we kind of fantasized what that would be like, especially at a younger age. I wasn't any happier the day after I, you know, sold the company than I was before. I wasn't any happier. I didn't feel any more fulfilled. It felt good. But uh, you know what? I needed a big why. And I recommend that all of us have a big why. Yes. And then that's exactly what I'm, you know, when I talk to people and, and helping coach them on their real estate journey and their investing journey and their life journey, you know, that's something that is always top of mind and always one of the first things that we're talking about is you know, honing in on your why, honing in on who you are and, and the purpose that you want to serve. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's just jump right into our monumental questions. All right. So what does success mean to you? So I just wrote a, a blog post for uh, Bigger Pockets and also uh, an, I have an e-course that I'm developing. And the first module of the e-course is what is wealth or what is true wealth. And for me, I could have gone down the road of saying it is spiritual in nature. It's having a happy family, a great marriage, great relationships, serving the community, having a big why. And I think that's all great. But I think success is also, uh, I think we should look at the nature of true wealth. And I think it's pretty simple. Uh, True wealth, in my mind, are assets that produce income. It's not just having a beautiful car, or, which is a depreciating asset, probably an asset of your banker, by the way, uh, or a mansion, which is also an asset of the mortgage company, typically not yours, uh, unless you paid it with cash. But uh, at any rate, uh, assets that produce income to me is true wealth. And so that's why I love commercial real estate investing. And um, so that to me, as far as wealth, that would be success. As far as success in general, it would be the other things I mentioned earlier. Yes, I love it. Um, So what about your daily habits or morning rituals that you have? Yeah, so for over 30 years, I've had a morning ritual where I try to spend some time in journaling, meditation, uh, reading ancient scriptures, uh, things like that. And, and right now I've married, married one of my passions, which is writing with that. Uh, lately, I've tried to restart uh, a pro- something I tried about 15 years ago, which is uh, actually writing little devotionals, like these little, you know, one or two or three page devotionals. And I'm actually marrying uh, science and uh, amazing facts from science to just a meditative, you know, kind of a daily thought for the day, you know, well, if, you know, this star burns 5 billion times brighter than the sun. Well, in that case, you know, and then I will try to relate that to something about the person's day, you know? Interesting. That's really cool. So, so that's called a devotional. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's just kind of like a devotional journal or something. I'm trying to get up to 100, and then I'm going to run it by my publisher to see if they want to publish it. That's really cool. Well, guys, be on the lookout for that if, that, uh, if that's going to come out at some point. That's really cool. Thanks. Um, so what about your favorite book or book you're currently reading? Yeah, so I've been fairly obsessed lately with a book by a guy in your hometown, Donald Miller. And the book is called Story Brand. And uh, the Story Brand book, he's taking a 2,000-year-old concept of storytelling, and he's teaching us to tell stories when we talk to our customers, uh, in our business, for our websites. Uh, he's basically teaching uh, a storytelling way of copywriting. I love writing. I love copywriting. Well, he's taking it to the level of, putting it in story form. And of course, our customers are always the hero of that story. We're not. And so uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying that book and that concept right now, but fairly obsessive with it. Even this morning, I spent a couple hours on that. That's really cool. Um, and I'll have to check out that book. And, and it sounds like something that would be right up my alley. Yeah, you should, you know, you should get Donald Miller on your podcast if you can. In fact, if you get him on yours, let me know. I'd love to have him on mine. He's, <laughs> uh, like I said, he's in Nashville and he's got his own podcast, the Story Brand Podcast that I've really enjoyed too. That's great. Yeah, that, we'll have to make that happen, both of us. Um, so in closing, how can our listeners follow you or reach out to you, Paul? Uh, they could come, of course, on Bigger Pockets. I'm all over there. I do live events on there. Uh, as well as blogs. And, um, but the best way to reach me is at my website, which is wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. I love it. Guys, take Paul up on that. Uh, and also, he's adding tremendous value over at Bigger Pockets, uh, like he said. And we're actually going to meet up here in Nashville uh, in a, just in a few days. So, um, Make sure to follow Paul. And if you guys enjoyed today's episode with Paul, make sure to share it on social media, uh, tag Paul, tag myself. And with that, have a monumental day. Mm -hmm.